Kapil, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Mark, for having me. I'm very excited to learn about uh, your company, Preschool to Me, and how you grew it and how you ended up selling it. So please, let's uh, let's start off with what was the genesis of the, of the idea? Yeah, that's a great question. So six years ago when I started the company, I used to be a consultant and travel a lot. And uh, my three-year-old was in a preschool at that time, and I used to miss out on his activities and what he was doing in the sc- preschool Uh, So my wife will stack up these paper reports for me to read over the weekend. And, um, you know, I I just couldn't keep up with it. Mm -hmm. So I reached out to the school owner and they were young owners in in Concord, North Carolina. And um, I pitched the idea of, hey, I'll build something for you to use in the classrooms. And at that time, there were other products available, but they were mainly focusing on pictures and videos Mm -hmm. and not so much about the learning aspect of, Mm -hmm. of, of early childhood. So that's where it all started. Mm-hmm. It started as a side project. Um, I have a technology background. I'm very comfortable with the outsourcing model. So I, I used that to you uh, to build the MVP, mm-hmm. and I took it to the school owners, and they loved it. And they said, hey, when you're ready, we are ready. So I went back, took three months, and built the whole product. Uh-huh. Um, and e- even today, the design that sits uh, on, on the App Store is what I created seven years ago. Incredible. Uh, the database design and all of that. So that's the journey. I love it. I love it. So tell us a little bit, what does the product, what did the product do? What does it, what does it currently do? What's it capable of? Yeah. So, you know, if you have uh, a kindergarten to 12th grade child, uh-huh. there's a lot of communication that comes home from schools these days. Mm-hmm. However, if you think of a preschool, it is still thought as a daycare, mm-hmm. which is your diapers are getting changed and your child is put to nap and fed and things like that. But for the last 10 years, I will say the direction is more towards early childhood Mm -hmm. education, and that's not getting communicated to the parents. Mm -hmm. So how does a preschool stand out from the daycare centers across the street, right? And so what our product does is it highlights the day for the parent Mm -hmm. in terms of memories, whether they are pictures, videos, personal notes from the teachers, reminders. And in addition to that, it also talks about the curriculum. Mm -hmm. It talks about the lesson plans. Why did my child read this book? Mm -hmm. What are they learning because of that? So that's what our product does. It it bridges the gap between the teacher and the parent Mm -hmm. for the early childhood market. And then we also have a lot of compliance and uh, administrative features that help preschools run more efficiently. Mm Got it. Got it. Now, we, you and I met a, a couple of years back, back when you were raising a round of, of angel financing, um, yeah. and we talked about some competitors. So, like, what what is a competitive advantage that you found as you were growing your company that allowed you to stand out from the other players in the market? I think um, for us, the goal has always been to build a relationship with our customers, mm-hmm. much more than just building a Frankenstein of a, of a product. <laughs> and so if you see our uh, our churn rate has been really, really low as compared to our competitors. Mm-hmm. And I see that as a, as a it, it, because of us trying to maintain that relationship with our customers mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. So even when uh, we grew to about 400 preschools, we still kept the company at that level where we were trying to engage with our individual customers, trying to understand uh, what what was really affecting them mm-hmm. in the day-to-day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not just about, hey, let's build this feature and <laughs> release it out for our customers. Um, so while we always had competition and more and more competitors have entered the market, mm-hmm. we have held on to our set of customers and we keep growing at a steady rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we build good partnerships here. Mm-hmm. 
if there is anyone who says there is no competition in the area that they are in, you know, they are wrong yeah. because there is always competition. If nothing else, we will be competing against paper, right? Uh -huh. Or what they are doing today. Um, I, I will say that the competitors have made our product better. Hmm. Uh, we have always looked at it from a positive point of view. Uh, our interactions with customer become that much more immersive because mm -hmm. now we are not just saying, hey, take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. We are now saying, okay, what can we do better compared mm. to a competitor X, a competitor Y? So my, you know, when I have, whenever I have raised money, um, I have always told this to our investors is that, sure, there is competition, but if, if there was no competition, we will be very complacent mm -hmm. and the product will not be where it is today. Mm -hmm. And because we have, fought the competition and still acquired new customers, possibly that's why SmartCare acquired us, mm -hmm. is because they saw that we were hustling and we mm -hmm. were uh, growing at a steady rate, even though the market is pretty competitive. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were not just playing the pricing game, we were playing the features game, we were mm -hmm. playing the customer relationship game. It also made me as a CEO think more about partnerships. Mm. And so we built partnerships with someone like Kaplan, which is a national brand in the area of assessments. So things like that uh, only happen because of competition. So mm -hmm. I, I feel that competitors helped us become better. If relationships, partnerships are so crucial to the success of the company, that's not a very scalable way of growing the company. So yeah. explain to me how you went from kind of like that, those early stage days where it's just you with this idea, with this, you know, kind of MVP to the point where you have, you know, several employees, you're in multiple client sites, like walk me through the, the, the way that you're able to grow the company. Yeah. Um, and I think if I had to do this all over again, I'll probably play this out a little different, but mm -hmm. let me tell you what I did and okay. then I'll tell you the mistakes probably I made. So very initially when we were pretty small, uh, I focused and put my head down on acquiring the one first customer, the 10th customer, the 100th customer. Not so much about how can I scale this so that I can get 20 customers at a time. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why we didn't get into the partnership mindset probably till the third year mm -hmm. of being in startup. And um, I look at partnerships not just because it enhances our product, because of integrations and stuff like that. But I started looking at partnerships as a channel to gain more customers. So had I had that mindset in year two of my company, probably we will, our trajectory would have been different. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing that I uh, keep telling whenever I speak with uh, f fellow entrepreneurs is always start looking for those channels outside of um, your regular skill you know, marketing and, and customer acquisition because mm -hmm. partnerships will help you get there. Yeah. Uh, and if and potentially those could be your acquirers, mm -hmm. right? If you build a very good relationship and impress you impress them with the product. Uh, and I think that's what happened in the case of smart care is um, we were always in front and center in their mind when they were looking at the childcare space mm -hmm. and we had an integration and a partnership with them. Mm -hmm. So when the time came for them to look across the market for an acquisition in this space, um, you know, they called upon preschool to me. Mm -hmm. So I think partnerships can go a long way. What's what, Now, what's your background? You, aren't your engineering background? Yeah, electrical engineer okay. from India and then did MBA in operations management, so uh -huh. supply chain essentially. Yeah. Worked for IBM, uh, Dell, Inspirage for in supply chain consulting for about 10 years uh -huh. before jumping into preschool to me. Got it. Now, being CEO of a company is a very multifaceted role. You end up having to learn a lot of new things. 
So your engineering and operations background prepared you probably somewhat, right? Yeah. In terms of like building, doing product dev and, and running a company, but the sales, the marketing, the partnerships, that seemed to be kind of new for you. It is. Yeah, it is very new. So what was what was that experience like learning that new skill and, and, and what advice would you give to entrepreneurs who might think, gosh, I really need these skills in my company, but I can't afford to hire someone? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, in the first few years of the company, you're always struggling between not having enough money to hire the right people at the right level. And so you end up doing a lot of those those things. And Sales, for example, comes to my mind where I was not prepared at all to do that. Um, I, I also want to quote, uh, you know, Mark Castleman, who is one of our uh, board members and invest early investors from Capital Factory, and he told me in one of my meetings with him that being a CEO is a very lonely job, mm -hmm. and that is so true because all the battles are in your head and. Not many people can help you when you are in that mindset. So I went through that for seven years mm -hmm. where you have a board, you have people who have probably done this before and are, want, want to help you. Uh, but the market is different, right? And the market conditions are changing and it's very difficult to for someone to just jump in and say, hey, here's the, here's the golden nugget for you to solve the problem. So I learned a lot on the job. Mm -hmm. uh, sales, you know, selling in front of a, sitting in front of a preschool director, um, who is worried about whether they are in ratio of teacher and students and trying to sell them a software. Uh, and they were not technology users before our product came into the marketplace. Um, so that taught me a lot. Um, but I, I struggled through it for the first two to three years. Mm -hmm. uh, once I you know, had the um, exposure to an institute like Capital Factory where I could talk to people and, and express my frustration or lack of knowledge. I got a few tidbits here and there where I started using them. Um, as an engineer, you know, I t you tend to lead with your product, mm -hmm. right? Um, and being a CEO, you have to put that in the back burner mm -hmm. when you're in front of a customer. You need to lead with what can solve their problem. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing that I learned just by reiterating same and same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. You raised a couple rounds of funding, correct? Yes. Okay. So walk me through kind of how you went from idea to first round of funding. You, was it two rounds of funding that you raised? Um, yeah, I think probably three rounds of funding. Three, three rounds. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you can consider one of them as the bridge round. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What was kind of the use of funds that you that you were raising the money for? Like at one point, did you realize, you know what, we need capital to do X? What was what was the mindset? What was the plan? Yeah, so I think the first round of capital was mainly to keep keep enhancing the product, mm. right? So it was more on software development. We, you know, we always had uh, paying customers from day one. So, uh, but I was investing my own money, and so I needed money to continue to develop more and catch up or keep up with the competition or with the expectations of the customer. The second round of funding was more um, growth related. So we were at 100 schools and we wanted to now get to 500 schools. So that's where we raised the second round and that came from Capital Factory. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so Mark Kesselman, uh, Don Craven, uh, Jean Belanger, they, and of course the matching funds from Capital Factory, Silverton and Floodgate was the second round. And that was a significant uh, infusion of not just capital, but also expertise, mm -hmm. you know. So Jean and Mark and my initial investors, Navneet and him, played a very critical role in getting us from 100 
preschools to where we were mm-hmm. uh, right after that. Uh, I think our third round came from um, a convertible death round that we did uh, here in Austin. And that was more to, uh, you know, we had figured out the... Um, the product engine, but we haven't yet fig- we hadn't yet figured out the sales engine. Mm-hmm. So that helped us kind of iterate through, do some A/B testing on working with the marketing agency and things like that, SEO mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, so that was the third round that we raised. Mm-hmm. What were some surprises along the way as your company was was growing? So I think I was naive in thinking that if you get uh, smart money, you will get people who will. Uh, invest their time and hmm. and have will have time to invest <laughs> yeah um, and you know I think for several reasons uh, many of my investors were busy with their day-to-day uh, life um, and and partly it could be that I didn't reach out enough but mm-hmm. I feel that um, just by getting money does not solve the problem mm-hmm. and that was li- like an eye-opener for me having mm-hmm. done this the first time that um, you still need to rely on your own knowledge your team mm-hmm. um, and how you are interacting with the customer hmm. um, so that was an eye opener for me and I tell my entrepreneurs all uh, fellow entrepreneurs all the time is sure raising money is important but mm-hmm. don't think of it as uh, the holy grail of success that's yeah. not going that does not convert into success necessarily and I think on, on that topic I'll just try to remind everyone that when you are trying to raise money with a with an investor, mm-hmm. that investor is doing a background check on you, yeah. right? Of all sorts, they're talking to other investors. They're trying to see how your product is doing, mm-hmm. and all of that. But what we as entrepreneurs don't do is the other way around, where we don't check, we don't do a reference check on our investors. We mm-hmm. don't necessarily talk to other fellow entrepreneurs mm-hmm. in which they have invested in. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's another lesson that. I have learned because then you get to know how much time this particular investor is actually going to invest, mm-hmm. you know, post round yeah. of funding, and uh, and also just understanding the time commitment, right? Yeah. So I didn't ask as many questions that I should have, um, and so that's another lesson I have learned. Explain to me how you went from a company that was growing pretty well consistently to the point where you thought maybe we can get this company acquired. As much as I would like to take credit for this, uh-huh. um, I will say it was just it was a coincidence of uh, us meeting SmartCare at conference, mm-hmm. and uh, that's where the subject came up of acquisition. Mm. Um, essentially, we were at a stage where we were growing, but we were not exploding mm-hmm. in terms of growth, and. I had indicated to my board that, you know, we are at a stage where our growth is tapering to a certain extent mm-hmm. and we we need to decide where we want to go from here. Mm-hmm. And so in summer of 2018, we spoke. I spoke with SmartCare's executive team and uh, they were not ready yet at that point. They were very interested but not ready yet mm-hmm. to, to, uh, to do the deal or acquisition at that point of time. So I think it took about nine months of courtship uh, with them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on our side, we kept adding more customers. Um, we kept getting in front of front of SmartCare. Uh, we were growing in markets where uh, SmartCare was not able to penetrate. Mm-hmm. So that caught their attention. Um, and then um, in March of 2019, they approached us again. And, and that's when everything started happening. Got it. Got it. So walk me through the M&A process. What were some of the surprises that you didn't really experience, that you didn't really expect to see along the way? Um, so 
internal and external surprises. So I'll start with external surprises, right? So, you know, I remember in my early days here at Capital Factory, I attended a class that Gordon was running mm-hmm. talking about MA. And he had talked about this uh, due diligence checklist, mm-hmm. right? And he said sometimes the due diligence checklist could get to thousand lines. And he was not kidding. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found that out in a painful way. So that's one big surprise as to how unprepared we were mm-hmm. as a company to go through uh, a due diligence process like this. Uh, number two, um, I also felt that um, while their CEO and their executive team and I were on, on the same page, I didn't feel the boards were on the same page. Hmm. So that uh, that took some little bit of adjustment and, and you know, I, I, I want to uh, be very thankful to both the boards, both Preschool to Me board and Smart Care board to see this through. But what I found out was that it's just because you have synergies between the two executive teams, because you have synergies between the two products and two companies, does not mean a deal will go through. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we uh, agreed on the number pretty early in the process, and yet it took us uh, some painful times to, to get mm-hmm. it done. Uh, on the internal side of it, um, what I found out was I didn't tap into the knowledge of the board members that uh, that had done this before so many mm-hmm. times, right? And so while I thought the process will go in a certain way, the process was going in a completely different direction. And that is a lesson that I learned is where I didn't prepare myself or the board what should we do or what steps need to be taken or what checks and balances need to be in place should we get an offer of acquisition. Had I done that in 2018, I think our 2019 acquisition would have gone much better. Hmm. And um, so that's, that's I think, from an internal point of view. I think the second thing I will say is, being me inexperienced, I was not the right person to run the acquisition process. Hmm. And my board members were either busy or uh, wanted to get the process to a certain stage before they getting involved. And that's why I think I will say we um, we took more time than it should have. Probably in 2018, we would have done the deal had I had someone from the board helping me mm-hmm. or working with me uh, in, in the interactions with smart care. Mm-hmm. So that's a lesson, another lesson I learned. Again, yeah. you know, being an engineer, I have no idea how these deals work. I'll be smarter next time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this time around, I think I will have appreciated or I should have asked for help, essentially. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of content in there that I'd like to unpack. So you mentioned uh, there's some surprises during the due diligence process. What were some of those surprises? Because I think when people think of due diligence, they think, oh, someone just wants to understand my business. I can do that. Yeah. So what were some of those surprises? Yeah, I think uh, the biggest two biggest surprises are in the areas of customer contracts mm-hmm. and financial accounting. Mm-hmm. Right. When you know our system was pretty simple. Um, you know, our CPA will run all the reports and all the financial statements and stuff like that. Now, whether they were gap compliant or not, what process we were using, whether it's accrual or cash basis, things like that Mm -hmm. uh, are things that, one, I didn't have the financial background, and two, that was the last thing on my radar to look at. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was focused on running the business. So when it came to 
explaining the market, explaining the partnership, explaining the product. I was very good at that. But when it came to everything else um, and relationship with customers, mm-hmm. I was able to explain. So one of the things we had to um, work through real diligently during the due diligence process was around the financial accounting, the due diligence process, uh, or the uh, customer contracts and stuff. So we had to chase that down to get it done. Um, so it was not as simple mm-hmm. as I thought. And again, that this is me being naive because it was my first time around. Uh, and I wished I, I had some help. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, did you bring in an accountant? Did you bring in an attorney to help with that process? Or was it kind of all on your shoulders? In, in, yes, to all of three, all three. <laughs> but I, I will also call out, you know, him, Desai, who's one of our investors. Uh-huh. He helped me out a lot on the financial accounting side of it. Mm-hmm. He had the knowledge. He had come from a VC background. Yeah. So he knew what they were going to look at and stuff like that. And then, of course, Jean and Mark uh, and Navneet also pitched in as needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had an attorney. And uh, that attorney made sure we had a checklist to look out for, you know, especially in the purchase agreement, asset purchase agreement to make sure we are not missing out on anything, uh, anything important and all the catch, catch all situations, essentially. Uh, So all of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Got it. Got it. Um, It sounds like you're pretty laser focused on this one, this one acquirer. Yeah. Did were there other companies that you thought you might want to um, approach to potentially acquire you? And if so, um, you know what was the mindset of going with this one? Yeah, we were approached by another company as well. Okay, uh, but they were a competitor rather than a complementary product. Okay, um, and so from a personal point of view, uh, if I if we were to merge with a competitor, we knew our product will be killed. Uh-huh. We knew uh, our team will be killed. Um, and my role probably will not be as imp- critical as it is today with smart mm-hmm. care. So that was one of the reasons. Then there was financial reasons as well, where um, the numbers was just not where we wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were not seeing the value because they were only after our customers, not our, after our technology and our mm-hmm. people. With smart care, we saw a match on many levels, right? So financials aside, we saw a match in the in the market strategy they had, what the value we were adding to their product portfolio, my role as the chief product officer now at, with smart care. Uh, all of those things were clear indication that this was the partner we mm-hmm. wanted to go. Um, we didn't pursue anyone else. Uh, once we knew that we had reached a deal number and uh, and a process with smart care and we just continued down that path and you know barring a few hiccups we we went through pretty quickly mm-hmm. you mentioned um you know if you were to do this over again you would have brought in some additional help is there anything else you would have done differently just around the acquisition process yeah, yeah i think around the acquisition process as i said i it it takes your focus away from your core company mm-hmm. right whether it's the product, whether it's growth, whether it's managing your personnel, mm-hmm. the focus goes away. And so had I be a more um, passive player in the acquisition process and had someone on my board run that process and I will be providing the data, we probably could have kept the business going uh, as usual. Mm-hmm. Um in case worst case scenario if the acquisition doesn't go through mm-hmm. right i don't think we had a plan b yeah and i think that's where probably i will you know i will bring in more help and say okay you run the process yeah. i'm here to provide you whatever data and information and presentations that need to be done yeah. but 
someone else needs to run this process because even when we were at 400 or so customers uh, i was uh, you know the lone founder i was the ceo uh, i was the cto i was the cmo yeah. uh, and i had two employees doing sales and operations and my development team was outsourced so it, we were pretty lean mm-hmm. we were pretty lean so if i am focusing 20 to 30 hours of the week on this acquisition process that's how much time i'm not spending on the growth yeah so that's that's something that you know the board needs to understand yeah yeah that's important um importance of a board member we actually talked about this on a prior podcast um how uh the last guest um brought in an external ceo thinking that he could just offload a lot of his responsibility onto this new person and go off and do other things but he realized that simply bringing in an external CEO doesn't remove responsibility it just transfers it so yeah. your your role changes from a CEO to a board member and then we started talking about the importance of board members and it seems to be a very consistent theme because we're talking about it here right now as well um, how they provide the support to the management they're yeah. not just you know people that you check in on or check in with once a month like they're very active to the point where they might actually be the ones driving the acquisition of your company yeah. so that your CEO can continue day-to-day operations of the business yeah yeah agree agree and again people mm-hmm. on my board were far more experienced and are far more experienced than I am mm-hmm. when it comes to acquisition process mm-hmm. and i think that um, and they did help me yeah. don't get me wrong they rolled up their sleeves when it mattered uh, i think i would have i should have asked for help sooner yeah. that's that's probably the point i'm trying to make no that's uh, that's good insight talk to me about the uh, integration process with smartcare so after the deal was done what was integration like yeah it's still ongoing right mm-hmm. uh, we got acquired end of july so mm-hmm. it's been 3 months um from a platform integration or product integration point of view i think we are still a little far away we have a strategy in place uh, but the actual execution is still being done is still underway we are trying to understand the customer better now as mm-hmm. to how they will pursue this acquisition and and how we should uh, inform the product strategy or vision based mm-hmm. on that so that's still in process and i am in the midst of that since my role is the head of product management mm-hmm. in terms of the company integration i think that too has gone really well um our you know that's smart kudos to smartcare executive team and and their board they uh, made it very straightforward for us to get integrated mm-hmm. including you know sending invoices to our customers and uh, and just branding and stuff like that so that has gone really well mm-hmm. yeah i always ask guests on the show you know when is the right time to sell being an engineer focused on product and the company i never thought of acquisition i never thought of an exit at all my mm-hmm. my focus was always on how do we get the next 50 customers mm-hmm. and how do we build the next y features and stuff like that so obviously i think my lesson here for myself is i should always have the mindset of hey if i'm partnering with kaplan maybe they are a possible acquirer mm-hmm. and i didn't get into that mindset till probably 6th year in our company so that's that's definitely something where you go to trade shows you go to uh, a customer meeting you should always keep your ears and eyes open for a possible acquirer mm-hmm. uh, who likes your story who likes the product who likes that you are creating a pain for them or mm-hmm. you're solving a pain for them yeah. and um, and you never know which partnership will turn into an acquisition so that's one thing that always always keep your eyes open for an exit yeah um when is the right time in in my case um the 
our growth numbers told us where we were. Mm-hmm. We had to either go out and raise a bunch of money to hire the right people, have a VP of sales, and and uh, try mm-hmm. to go into the uh, into the next sphere of growth. Um, but also, or the other option was to become part of another company that had the resources uh, and could explore the preschool to me brand with all, all with all of their customers as well as new customers and um and also of course you have to look at the bottom line right mm-hmm. so how are you growing and and where are you financially and stuff like that so at, in my case it was a clear t- uh, sign mm-hmm. that uh, either instead of raising money and which we did we had raised some money a year ago uh, we now needed to either merge with the company that had their sales engine figured out mm-hmm. um uh, and or um find someone who can figure out the sales engine mm-hmm. which i hadn't till that point yeah the way i'm thinking this of this is like kind of visually like a decision tree yeah you know like one of my previous guests was a hemi thacker who started two hardware companies here in austin and and and, and sold them um his advice to entrepreneurs is just to build a profitable business yeah. Um, and he says, uh, don't go out looking for acquirers. They'll come to you because once you p- reach profitability, yeah. you know, you have tons of options on the table. You can do anything that you want. And so listening to what you're saying, it sounds very similar where it's like you want to sprint as fast as you can to achieve as much growth as you can with the resources that you have. Yeah. And focusing entirely on the customer, entirely on building a really good profitable business. But then once you reach this point of like inflection, you have to ask yourself, well, you know, what is that thing that's causing me to evaluate our business? Is it the market conditions? Is it, you know, uh, plateauing growth? Um, And then asking yourself, what's easier? What's a better strategy? Should I raise money? Or should I maybe look for a potential acquirer at that stage? Yeah. But it's like in between these periods of evaluation, you've got to be 100% focused on growing the business because that's what's going to get you to that next stage of evaluation where you have the option to make the decision. Yeah, that is is so true. Yeah. And I think the uh, one other thing that, as you said, you can't take an eye off the uh, ball in terms of growth, Mm -hmm. right? every net new customer is going to multiply by four or six or mm-hmm. 10 when it comes to an acquisition, right? Yeah. So you had to keep focusing on getting that ex- that 10 extra customers uh, every month or every week or, you know, depending on the business uh, you are in. Uh, and you mentioned profitability. So I just want to take a second to talk about that. So initially for the first uh, six, five, six years, we didn't focus so much on being profitable. We mm-hmm. focused on growth, growth, mm-hmm. and growth. And um, for a business that's not necessarily reached the VC round yet, um, it's very easy to burn through cash mm-hmm. very quickly without showing tangible growth. And that's one of the things I, for in, uh, late 2017 and early 2018, I kept focusing on is how close are we to break even? Mm-hmm. How close are we to break even? I made sure that was the story I was talking to with my investors, with my board. Um, and, you know, j- typically it's very difficult for a SaaS business to talk about uh, hyper growth and also talk about profitable in the mm-hmm. same sentence. Yeah. They either do, they don't go in hand in hand. And one of the things I tried with preschool to me was, no, now let's try to be profitable hmm. so that if there is a legacy, if someone else wants to take over the company, if I get I replace myself with a CEO, I don't want to leave that person in a hole mm-hmm. trying to 
make the company work mm-hmm. so we you know i focused a lot of time even before we knew we were getting acquired to get ourselves to break even mm-hmm. right and there's always some fat in the company that you can take out there's always um things that you can tweak um to to get there mm-hmm. and and uh, that's a lesson i tell tell every entrepreneur is don't go chase, chasing money also look at what can you do on your end to get to break even and that's, that has helped it takes a whole load of pressure off your shoulders that's great advice i love that are there any last pieces of wisdom that you want to leave our audience with um no i, I will just say that there will be sleepless nights um <laughs> you will worry about the next payroll you will worry about how you're going to uh get that next 10 customers um key is to you know not just keep investing in product but invest in sales and marketing because mm-hmm. uh, that always takes the back burner especially when an engineer is at the helm of the product i made that mistake and uh, i keep telling entrepreneurs is if you are not spending 30 to 40% of your revenue on marketing and sales you're doing something wrong so awesome. just focus on that yeah awesome kapil thank you so much for joining us today thanks for having me